Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon here with co-host Eric Trexler. Eric, Good how are you? Good morning, Rachel. I am well. As I said, I just came off a week of working through QBR slides. I am motivated and ready to go. Awesome. I'm so happy we have a podcast to get me out of that, that, that uh, mathematical mess. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Fun. Um, can I can I just share one thing? It's I don't know um, at this age I won't say how old I am, but it's it's fun to experience something new in your life. You know, it's it's not always that you get a new thing. And and I had a weird new thing. I was at the dentist and I went into there was an elevator and all the lights were out. Wait a minute, your and dentist I, has an elevator? Yes, it's great. It was I'd love to poll our audience and see how many dentistry <laughs> how many dentists have elevators. But go on. But and it was all dark, and I I stood there for one second, or probably longer, debating: Do I get in, or do I wait for another one? And I got in, and nothing happened. And I I reached my floor, and I was very excited. But I'd Why never had that happen before. I, I don't know. Nobody knew. I, I asked. When you all got the in, questions. did the lights go on? No, no, it stayed dark the whole time. I was just you in rode darkness. the elevator in the dark. <laughs> yes, okay, I was late so- for my appointment. <laughs> Okay, so so I think there's a parallel here with security. Sometimes mission <laughs> overcomes safety. Exactly. exactly. That's a, that, that was a daring move. I, I bet if we polled the audience, we would have a lot of people who said, I'll take the stairs or wait for the next one. I'm not stepping into a potentially working dark elevator. Yeah, it was a little creepy. It was, a little was there creepy, a light switch? I... No, there was nothing. There was How nothing many floors there. did you have to go up? Luckily, just up. the one. I mean, you know, so it was it was minimal risk with just the one floor. I, I but think some cybersecurity people would have said, mm, <laughs> probably not juice, not worth the squeeze. I'll just take the single flight of stairs. Well, that's true because risk we like to mitigate that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who do we have today talking about risk and oh, cybersecurity talking, and elevators? Exactly, per- perfect lead in. So today we have joining us Mike Watson. He's the Chief Information Security Officer for the State of Virginia. It's a role he's held since 2011. Wait a minute, the Commonwealth of Virginia, I believe. I'm sorry, the Commonwealth of Virginia, which, by the way, has more than 100,000 employees, 60,000 workstations, 3,500 servers, uh, and on and on. This is a huge, huge job, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to today's discussion. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Well, thank you very much for having me, and and, and I, I appreciate you doing that that uh, cyber assessment before you got in the elevator too. At least making the risk based decision, um, the, and I'm with you. You know, your teeth are important. You got to make sure you keep them clean. Uh, <laughs> Michael, I have a question for you. Welcome to the show, by the way. Um, would you have stepped into the elevator or taken the stairs? So I probably would have taken the stairs because my fear would have been that I would have been more late for the uh, the. Uh, 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 appointment if I didn't actually get up in the elevator. But, that's uh, where I am too. Maybe it's uh, we're <laughs> both from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, so maybe it's a yeah. Pennsylvania thing. <laughs> that's right. Yep. I would have that, that would have that was my immediate risk assessment there. Like I'll run the stairs. In fact, yeah. it probably would have been faster that. than the elevator. Probably, yeah. Did it's, even it's cross my mind. You never elevator. know with, the, with devices nowadays. I know we. we it's funny because I've had that conversation with a couple of my coworkers about. How do you know when something is broken versus an actual 
you know, compromise. And it's, it's really not easy to tell, you know, I've seen some really great demos about hospital equipment that's out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from it, the, the difference between it malfunctioning and, and actually um, being attacked, you can't tell the difference. Um, wow. It just looks like it's broken. Right. But the lights off on an elevator, that's a pretty good leading <laughs> indicator that you want to at least assess it further. <laughs> Interesting decision, Rachel. I know. Well, the door opened. I figured, you know, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> well, you are the director of communication and all of communications could have stopped for quite a while as you were caught in that dark elevator. So you ride the elevator up in the dark. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least it but worked nothing, out. But nothing happened, you know? So uh, I, I thought that was a really awesome win. It's like ransomware. Nothing happened. We're good. You, you got lucky. <laughs> I did. I did. Well, and that's, that's kind of the life today, right? I mean, it's, you kind of roll the dice and you get lucky and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't. So kick us off. Well, I mean, having, having been in this role since 2011, Mike, I, I can only imagine just the trajectory you've seen, you know, in, in, in the cyber landscape and particularly how it's addressed at the state level. I would love kind of your, your perspective here on the last 10 years and kind of what you've seen. Oh geez, I mean it's been it's been a wild ride. Um, you know we have this weird thing that kind of happens in cybersecurity where we'll have uh, like periodic whirlwinds of activity that that kind of happens, right? Um, so to put it in context, you know, I started at the agency somewhere in the two that my agency that does uh, cybersecurity right around the two thousand you know seven uh, mark, and I had been working at the auditor's office, which is a great way to learn the state, right? You kind of go visit every agency, you get a feel for how they work. Um, so, you know, I've been, I'll say, at the position for about 18 months, and then we actually experienced our first um, cyber attack, our first ransomware attack, right? Wow. This is early ransomware, right? So this, this is like 2008-ish? Wow. With, yeah, so 2009, I think, is when it okay. was. So, okay, so pretty um, early. Yeah, like, yeah. Most it people was, don't know what ransomware is in 2009. Right. No. And that's exactly it. it, it what, what it came across as was that there was this, um, you know... Uh, at the time, right, they were starting a lot of the prescription management programs, the uh, making sure that, you know, people were registering when getting uh, any of the opioids and things like that. Um, and that program was the thing that got compromised, right? Somebody put up a, a, our pharmacies all logged into this application. And someone put a giant message up on the board that said, you know, you, you, you've been hacked. If you want your information back, you're going to have to pay us, you know, $10 million or something crazy like that. No Bitcoin at that point. Yes. No Not Bitcoin. Really. Yeah. It was actually yeah. $10. But let me tell you, that was Brown a paper sack <laughs> on third and market at noon under the park bench. That's right. The trench coat and, uh, and hat and everything. <laughs> and I better um, not be tailed. <laughs> or there will be consequences. <laughs> yep, it was it was fascinating though. We the the governor went on sixty minutes talking about it and everything. It was it was it was an interesting experience and even one of those first kind of um, landmark things for us because you know we were coordinating with lots of different agencies, federal and and state, and trying to go through this process and yeah. and just even figuring out you know how bad this could have been or how bad it was for the state was even just an exercise because no one had gone through something like this before. Right. You know, fortunately for us, this is, this was not the realm of today where everything's a well-oiled machine on the, on the right. exploit side. So we were able, we had backups, we were able to recover. We figured out what was going on. It wasn't the end of the world for us. Um, but like I said, it was a gut check and a half as far as starting out in that role and kind of only having a little bit of time underneath my belt. Um, but I will say that, there's nothing that it that intrigues your interest in security more than a good cyber event. I mean, you get to kind of look at pretty much everything and and 
you know, it, yes. it's a, it's a really great exercise in just how prepared you are. Um, so I kind of have seen this dawn of ransomware even back early wow. days and have been watching it progress ever since we've had so, an iteration so Michael, in there. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're right. Didn't mean to cut you off there. I just have this burning question. <laughs> You've seen this over time progressing both mm -hmm. on the adversarial side and on the defensive side, mm -hmm. you know, how we're protecting our networks. In 2009, who are you talking to at the Fed level? Oh, uh, <laughs> I mean, DHS exists. There's yeah. no CISA. <laughs> right. Like, who do you call? It was mostly FBI, but we did interface with a whole bunch of different other folks as part of the process as well. Um, it was great. The FBI were great supporters at that point, right? We had an awesome local agent. They were working with us, you know, in and, you know, pretty much every day. And they were fascinated by this as well, right? I mean, it was something relatively new yeah. to them. Um, it was also a big case, right? You know, you don't really get that many $10 million, what I forget what the amount of money was, but right. it was something absurd. Um, you know, that, that large of a ransom request for something like that before. It was one of the first times they'd saw something like this. Wow. Um, so it was, you know, working with, uh, working with federal government partners was, was huge at that point. And it did, I think, help conversation wise, you know, put us into a, what's this going to look like in the future? What are the types of protocols that we've got to worry about and, and things like that? So it's, it's been interesting and in, in watching that kind of progress over time. Obviously at this point, I think everybody's, you know, playbooks are, are pretty straightforward to be able to handle, um, or at least know what we've got to do in a lot of these circumstances, whether we have the resources to do it or not, it's a different question, but. Right. But you're you saying know, at the federal and state level, the playbooks. Yes. Cause I would yeah. argue at the local level, and you're much more of an expert than I am, may not even have playbooks in some cases. That's correct. Okay. Um, but I will say that law enforcement is way more prepared to handle these things mm -hmm. and they generally know who to reach out to. So even at the local level, um, they don't have the resources to execute most of the time and they don't have the preparedness in place most of the time. But if they need somebody to walk them through what needs to happen, we can find them a resource. But you know how it is. Like reading a book doesn't tell me how I'm actually going to execute something. And that's really where the biggest problem ends up. Okay. Okay. So you were talking about the changes over time when I really cut you off. I didn't mean no, to, but I, I had yeah, that. I just no. had to. I had to what was <laughs> no, it like? I'm glad. I, I like the questions. Right? And that's a great example of something that's just, it has just evolved dramatically over time. And it's kind of a good, you know, kind of central point for the way security has evolved over time, right? We've always known, we've always had these cyber hygiene things and we know exactly, you know, where are the areas that we need to focus on just to kind of get things under control. And we've just seen it get more con more evolved and concise and structured as time has gone on, where we generally know the things that are going to work to keep a majority of the stuff out, right? It's like, you know, houses and homes, right? We know lock your doors, lock your windows, um, make sure that you're not, you know, leaving any anything super valuable, uh, you know, out in the open. You're generally good, right? It's the same thing on the cyber side. We know what those types of things are that need to be done, and we're generally good. The problem is, just like on the on the home side, we know that if somebody really wants to get in, they're going to. Yeah. And how we prepare and how we um, structure ourselves to respond to that is where a lot of the evolution has come over time, um, making sure that we are ready for those large-scale events and attacks, either be due to somebody leaving something unlocked or, or not doing cyber hygiene, or to somebody that is really after us and wants to get in and do some harm. Right. I feel in some cases we haven't even put doors and windows in place to lock it. Yes. Right. In some cases. That is very true. I mean, you, you, you just like any other any other place, you you run the gamut of, of what types of equipment you've got in place, whether it's the uh, steel reinforced 
um, door with lots of deadbolts on it, or you've got the flimsy, uh, you know, cardboard uh, innard with like the the very uh, loose lock, um, or or a piece of of plastic <laughs> yes. staple gun to the frame of the door because we're still in the yes. construction. <laughs> the screen door of equivalent. Yeah. Yep, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'm fascinated by this this I guess phenomenon, if you were, and we were talking about it a little bit earlier, and 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 it kind of ties into a quote. You know, you were you were in this great Washington Post article was looking at kind of state and local government ransomware attacks and. Um, you know, and, and, and until there's a catalyst event, right, like a colonial pipeline, for example, security isn't isn't the number one thing. You know, it's like it, it, and it's almost like we have to wait for the bottom to drop out, which when will that happen? But, you know, in order to get the right funding and and I, I at the state level, I mean, I, I know you're seeing this kind of acutely. I'd be interested in kind of um, how do we how do we get out of this routine of, you know, catalyst event? Then we put resources to it. Can we can we get ahead of that? Yeah, and that's a, it's a great question and something I think we've been really trying to figure out how to how to deal with, especially as a security community over time. The media reinforcement has helped dramatically uh, accelerate where it is that we are, right? We're seeing some pretty significant um, types of attacks, right? Everything from the uh, crazy nation state stuff we saw with like Stuxnet and, you know, nuclear secrets and, and, and nuclear uh, uh, related uh, style attacks and to the to the day now where we're at with the colonial pipeline and critical infrastructure style attacks where things are trying to disrupt you know um, uh, the life of the average american that to me is obviously pretty concerning right we're starting to get to this point where things are are reasonably weaponized and and can can end up impacting our day to day i'm not sure where that tipping point is that we get to um, where things are, are considered too much, right? That we need right. to stop this now. And, you know, if you were to compare it to the pandemic that we're in now, right? Something happened. Uh, we had a virus that ends up, you know, impacting a ton of people. It's shutting down business. It's causing loss of lives. Like we all as an entire globe work together to figure out a solution on how to address this. Um, obviously, we've got a little bit of different com- competition, right? Because in this case, we've got uh, you know, some nation states who leverage some of these cyber things. Right. So there's not quite as central of a of a direction um, that we may have uh, for, for cybersecurity as we did for something like a health related pandemic. But we need to come up with whatever um, whatever type of, of uh, general response and focus we can to try to drive this to at least some level of of. I'll say closure or at least a, a restriction on, on how bad it can get because we're, we're at that point where it can get pretty bad. The colonial pipeline was a great example of something that went, that impacted us pretty terribly. Um, if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, we would have been a large problem, right? We would have had the East coast shut down um, and we wouldn't have been able to function. And that's, that is scary for the, the average citizen. I think we, we really lucked out that it wasn't as terrible um, as, as it could have been. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's at what point do we as a society really decide to dig in and do something as opposed to allowing things to happen to us? I, I was just you know, reading, the, uh, reading the article in the Washington Post that, Rachel, you referenced August 22nd. I think mm-hmm. we can lo- link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. You know, it talks about Baltimore County Public Schools, Fairfax County Public Schools being attacked. But I'm, I'm just going to take it to the Commonwealth of Virginia. It also mentioned Hampton Road Sanitation. Mm-hmm. Bristol Police Department in Virginia, mm-hmm. and there were some others mentioned in there. 
yeah, I've been in this business for a good while now. We've been covering ransomware pretty extensively on the podcast. I didn't even hear about Hampton Road sanitation. I didn't hear about Bristol police. Yeah. Right. It, it, there's so many things happening across yeah. the across the spectrum here. It's almost it's it's unlike 2009 where it was one of the first pieces of ransomware right. and, and we dug in. It's almost like commonplace in every day, which well, is a sad place to be. And what I'm finding interesting is is we're running into the data breach problem, right? right. So like if you think about you know, going back to the first question about the evolution of, of, you know, what has happened over time in security, like data breaches used to be a huge deal, right? Now we're at right. the point of like, oh, I got breached again. All right. I'll just, you know, keep checking. The Verizon data breach, breach report yeah. is just like, oh, <laughs> yep. here's, here's the new year's list. Yep. Let's look at what, you know, how the actors or the bad actors have shifted their techniques, but. Yep. And that's exactly. That's disappointing. Yeah. And it, well, and it, and it's, and I, I get it to a certain extent, right? We ended up in this scenario where effectively, when you look at it from a pure security vision, we came up with mitigating controls, right? We came up with this way to manage our credit. The The credit card companies stepped up their game to make sure that it wasn't as big of a problem. The credit monitoring companies did a lot of changes to make sure it's not as bad of a problem. It's still a problem, don't get me wrong, but it's not as bad as it used to be. Um, if your information is is breached, everybody, you know, there's education and information about what to do in those circumstances to keep it from becoming a, a large issue. The ransomware component is where we were with the with the uh, um, data breaches a few years ago, right? They're starting to happen consistently, and they're not necessarily making the news anymore. They're not as big of a deal. They, oh, yep, another company got you know compromised. Uh, you know these yeah. people are down for ransomware. Just wait a few days, and they'll they'll eventually come back up. You know, work around it. Yeah. Um, it's it's concerning to me in that. The, the key difference here is that this is the first time it's impacting the physical world, right? right. The, the things that we worry about are, yes. you, you know, somebody impacting our, our roadways or our gas supply or our, you know, water, water sanitation, systems. you name yeah. it. Supply yeah. chain too. I mean, yep. I, I don't know in Virginia, but there's this thing now, like uh, we, we call it tractor hackers, but, you know, targeting these farmers, right? Because you don't mm -hmm. realize all of their things are now internet, internet enabled. John Deere has like these crazy technologically advanced, you know, whatever they do to like churn the wheat or whatever. And, and that starts to get kind of scary. Like that's real supply chain impact. Yeah. And it is a place who would have thought, yeah, right? who would think to go that route, but they are. It is crazy. And the, and we know that, I mean, look, we, we already know that we've got driverless cars on the way and smart city components. Like we, in my area, I've got both smart water meters and smart electric meters, right? And we know that we're moving towards more of these types of highway beacons and things mm -hmm. for our, our driverless cars. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be, you know, capable of interfacing with the physical world more than what it is now. I mean, look, just simple things like traffic lights, right? You know, uh, because, because a lot of our physical devices take a long time to update, at some point, our traffic lights will be more on that complete wireless IoT structure thing. Right. And all of a sudden, you've got, you know, the capability to interface or um, have it interfacing with some of these devices, whether that's through the cars or maliciously through a third party. Those are all major concerns. The fact that, you know, we are setting ourselves up for the ability to interface physically in the environment without the right types of technical protections in place is scary. We've got to, right. we've got to, as a community, prepare ourselves or accelerate some of our, our mitigation techniques and approaches to prevent that from being a problem. 
Um, We're obviously very concerned about it at the state level. Um, We know that it's a shared responsibility though, right? Um, You know, Erica, as you were saying earlier, our localities, they own some of this stuff, right? They own water systems. They own, um, you know, a whole bunch of critical infrastructure components. And there's, there's not, they are not in a great position to be able to protect them. A lot of times they don't have the resources necessary um, to, to make it work. And, you know, if we don't do something soon, we will be in those scenarios where, where our physical critical infrastructure is being, being breached more than it currently is in the future. And I've got to imagine that's very frustrating and difficult at the same time for you. I mean, if, if we had a, a, an attack of some sort at the local level that impacted water, let's just mm-hmm. pretend water, right? Wasn't it Old Smart, Old Smart Dam? Yes. Mm-hmm. Rachel in Florida, where they were mm-hmm. going to dump a ton the of lye into the mm-hmm. water and, and pollute the water supply. I mean, the first one of the first people getting called is the governor of the, of the Commonwealth, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I'm betting you get called pretty quickly after that. Michael, what happened? Tell me what's going on. What are we doing about it? And you're like, you know, <laughs> hold on. I mean, what is that? I mean, that's got to be a difficult feeling. It, it is. So, so it's interesting being a, a public sector figure and stuff, because really what it comes down to is not only are you trying to protect, in my case, the state, right? right. We're also acting as a level of expertise to be able to advise in scenarios like, right. the, like that one, right? Um, and part of what we try to do is to make sure that we're always – you know, out there stumping for preparedness and making sure folks are aware. Um, but recognizing that, um, you know, government struggles planning for long term. So we are in the position of being ready for the inevitable compromise that will happen. What do we need to do? How does, how do we need to react? Um, so we've at least thought through some of these items, but ultimately there, there isn't really a great scenario that we're going to come out with when something like that happens because, inevitably um, you've got the the problem that, that Flint runs into, right? Where does government step in to right. help manage the quality of the water? If that lie scenario had, had uh, you know, ended up being coming to fruition. Um, I think right. it's, it's interesting even, um, you know, the, the, and I believe that was the right case where the, the only reason that they caught it was the guy was sitting there, right? Right. right. The guy was sitting at the, at the station Watching and saw it, the yes. little dial change. <laughs> and well, yeah. Back. That yes. or a mouse cursor move yes. or something. Yes. Yes. I mean, yep. it, it was, it was random dumb ass luck. Exactly. <laughs> I think we can <laughs> all agree to dumb luck that that ended up being a thing. And I, I, right. you know, as a sometimes you get person, lucky and I'll take it. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, true. You know, you're never going to turn down, turn down something that ends up being lucky. Um, but it's, uh, I'm with you. It's, it is, it is, really scary that that's kind of what we ended up with. If somebody wasn't watching that, granted, I'm sure some alarms would have eventually tripped, but how much damage was going to be done first? Um, And we're not prepared as a country to understand where the blurred lines are for response like that for coming in. Does the governor send in someone like the National Guard to help? Do the feds come in to help? Who is it that's going to end up stepping in in that scenario to address those issues if the private company isn't able to make it, make it, right. you know, function correctly. And, you know, I'm never a proponent. I, I like letting folks handle their own components and let them right. work it out and right. be there to help and advise and say, this is what you need to do. Um, but realistically, sometimes just like if it's going to be a locality or someplace that's under-resourced, I mean, Colonial Pipeline didn't have, they, they had, um, and I'm not trying to knock them too much, but they posted within like two days of the compromise for a new 
security position. They didn't have something before. No, that was actually posted before. Oh, was that posted before? Oh, it? Yeah, oh. it was actually, uh, I, I forget the time frame, but it was it, it was a couple weeks prior. They were asking, oh, wow. but it wasn't for a CISO. I mean, it yeah. was, I, I got the impression it was a very sparse cybersecurity team. I'll have to take a look because what what we were joking at as we were looking at when we were seeing this is that I think maybe what happened is the postings came through like LinkedIn and some of those other places. Somebody somebody noticed it a couple of days after, I believe, but I think it was actually posted before. Yeah. And then they were working towards... they were working towards, uh, uh, I guess, you know, filling that that out and trying to, you know, you know, make that better. But it's it was the fact that they were posting for security position when something like that happened is always right. a difficult, first of all, message. And second right. of all, indicative of where we are with our kind of like under-resourced, minimally resourced exactly. uh, areas. So it's, you know, it it's not a super surprise to see something like that. And again, not trying to knock on Colonial Pipeline in particular, but it's just the the easy example, recent one that people can can think back on. It's not all that different from any of the places that have been compromised. You typically go back and say, "All right, I guess I need to shore up my security stuff now that now that this has happened." <laughs> it's, it, I always like to go back to the physical world. It's mm-hmm. almost like a, a lot of these organizations and agencies and businesses don't think about locking their doors and windows. Physical security, right. like if you're going to build a new building at the county or local level, you're going to put locks on the doors, right? It's just part of the architectural plans, right? You may put security cameras in, you may have an alarm contract. I think in a lot of these cases, they don't think through from a cybersecurity perspective, the same types of considerations. We're just not mature enough yet. Yeah. And that's that's the issue for me. You're absolutely right. The basics. And I hate to go back to compliance. We've talked about compliance a ton on the show. And some compliance is not necessarily good security, right. but there's got to be some baseline level. NIST mm-hmm. has great documents out there. Um, CISA has great. I mean, there are tons right. of information out there where you can say, "Okay, I'm a you know, whatever. I'm a I'm a I'm a a state organization that controls uh, all the traffic lights. Mm-hmm. You know, a local county, right? We, we control the. What do we need to think about?" Right. Maybe, maybe you decide, I don't have the budget right now, or we're not going to do anything, but maybe you decide, take it off the network or have basic level protections in place. Right. You're right. I mean, the, the idea of what needs to be done, the basics, right? The things that we need to do to, to basically make sure that our, our day-to-day is safe are really, you know, well spelled out. And I, I give major props to, you know, the feds and everybody at, at NIST and, and DHS and everything. They do a wonderful job of communicating what those that basic framework looks like and what needs to be done in order to kind of secure the household, right? The the basic components of it. Um, and you're right. There's people that are either uh, consistently making a choice that they're going to do this later. They're not doing it quite yet or they're not ready to make the investment. Um, and some of them pay the price for not being able right. to, to or, make Or they just don't know. It, or, it was yeah. interesting. The, the article, Brett Callow from MSISoft, I don't know them. Cybersecurity firm said local governments are not necessarily targeted more by ransomware groups. Rather, they're hit as an operator of inadequate security systems caught in a wide cast net. Yes, that is that is true. And I completely concur with that assessment. Yeah. And then he goes on to say most ransomware attacks are spray and prey in nature. They hit the ones with the weakest systems. Local governments seem to have the weakest systems. Yes. 
you would think there would be a baseline, low watermark level you've got to get above. And you could at least temporarily elevate local local government systems above the weakest that are caught in the wide cast net. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, no. And, I'm, and, I'm not a ransomware, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> attacker. You know. And, well, but, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's about, it's about those, the amount of resources that we're applying to any, any location. And you, you are absolutely correct. The, the localities and such tend to be under-resourced across the board because we, as we want to have, I'll say an efficient government as the American public. And generally that means maintaining whatever the, the lowest amounts of cost attached to government as we possibly can. And unfortunately, the the way that that works is when we have an event with some particular area, it doesn't really make a difference whether it's education or some sort of service uh, or, or whatever. Cyber is no different until we start seeing it consistently and say, hey, we really got to invest in something or it's going right. to cost us more money than the investment. Right. We end up in this in scenario and local and government will always lag behind private sector for that particular right. reason. Private sector has incentives to protect their bottom line that right. they will adopt, um, government tends to lag a lot of times in those areas. And that's not to say that there aren't places that are doing it right. I don't want to you know, right. generalize too much. Uh, but, and of course I'll say Virginia's, you know, doing whatever they can here, especially at the state level where- But, but even hard. if you do, Michael, the best you get is you're not in the news. Yes. Right. Nobody, nobody says you did a crappy job. Right. Right. You're, right? You're you correct. just did your job. And, right. and you, I wonder how much recognition you even get for doing your job. Right. Well, and that's, yeah, that's a- that's, that's almost a whole a whole thing on itself, of course. Is trying to we want to unpack that on the show today. Don't worry. <laughs> the uh, trying to figure out just like how well somebody is doing is actually a really hard thing to do, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we I talk to a lot of my fellow CISOs at, at other states, and we are we do talk about that a lot. Is like where is that line? How how much is too much? How much is yeah. not enough? you know, what are other people doing? And we try to kind of figure out a way to kind of meet in the middle there because there isn't really like as much as we have great standards and structure for what needs to be done to maintain a program, the devil's always in the details, right? There's little things that need to be done. Um, how far do you expand a particular uh, topic? So like multi-factor authentication is a really great example, right? The, the um, you know, for for those that might not be familiar, right, that's the little code that you enter and whether it's from a fob or something that's sent on a text message or whatever. The the security folks, my, like myself, I always say just do it for everything because it's just easy. I was going to say, I mean, to me, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, right. MFA, two-factor authentication, call it what you will. It should be on everything. Right. It should be everywhere. As a security person. But it's person, such a hassle. You oh, well, there you go. Oh, there's the elevator. There's the elevator again. Oh, now, and, and, and it's the balanced response. I get it. There are some things that probably don't need it. But, you know, we also know as security practitioners, you just, you know that differentiating between them, because when it comes down to it, you're going to go to the appointment rather than make sure that. You've actually, yeah. you know, used the 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 two factor that you've checked everything out before you, right. you've, you've gone in because it it is the nature of of the way that humans react, and we know that it is going to be a consistent problem. So applying multi factor everywhere is a challenge. As much as I'd love to say that it, you know, I, I have carte blanche to turn it on in any scenario, there are a lot of very specific, weird interaction things where 
that they basically come and say the citizen just won't do it. If we end up doing right. it that way, the right. citizens won't leverage the services that we need them to leverage. And, and, and that's accurate. Yeah, yeah. it is. Watch this, Michael. Rachel, what would you rather have? A complex password for each website that you can't manage or multi-factor authentication for each website? If it's multi-factor, can it be on my face, on my phone? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and there is our problem, listeners. No. It's hard. And therefore, Rachel does not want it. Even though she doesn't want you stealing her credit card information yeah. or understanding, you know. It's true. Getting into her photos on her phone or whatever it may be. I mean, that's that's the problem that we have to deal with. Yeah, yeah and it's it's representative. I mean, you know, it, 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 is, it is not... Rachel's not unique in this circumstance. I mean, it is that is the normal citizen, right? You want to be able to, to leverage that, and that's what I I love the the phone generation, you know, components for um, you know being able to to use your face now at least as as Genius. you know part of that multi factor. It's yes. well, I, I was I was going to say. I mean, that's that's actually to your point, Rachel. That's a great answer. Mm -hmm. Apple in, in that case, or or Google has already authenticated you. And, and you see some of this in the ecosystem where if you have an Apple Watch, you don't have to constantly log in. You're there. It recognizes you, right? So as the technology matures and we can take advantage of some of these mechanisms that do exist, security goes way up. And the the difficulty, the the impact to the user and, and ease of access probably stays pretty uh, pretty manageable, I would think. Like you wouldn't care if you could just look at your screen and it said, hi, Rachel, yeah. you're, you're in, yeah. right? That's easy. Amazing. Yes. But that text is, that's just one step too far. What if I don't have the phone with me? I mean, I've had that happen because I have two phones. And so a yeah. lot of times it wants to multi-factor on the phone that I don't have with me because it's charging and I'm just like, er, and then I can't get into it. And it's well, very I'll give you, I'll give you the one that my wife gives me a hard time about, right? Because we have, we share a single Amazon account, right? And we have multi-factor set up oh. on Amazon. Well, I get the too. It's a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so whenever she's trying to log in to get something, you know, I have to send her the text for whatever it is that she's trying to get in. And let me tell you, if there's anything, she does not like that. <laughs> Definitely does not like that. Mine likes to reset the password then. <laughs> <laughs> Which just goes to me anyway. Yeah, see, yep. Hilarious. Well, and that's where we were before I ended up setting up the at least the yeah. token. Um, but yeah, it's 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 that that problem. That usability isn't quite there for everything right. yet. Um, and it'll be a while. But uh, Eric, I, I'm with you on, I see a day when we have the, our phones are, are effectively like you just walk up to a system and everything's just authenticated and everything's, you know, squared away when you get there. I, I can't wait for that to be there. We're just... They need to accelerate that technology just yeah. a little further. Well, and the privacy people, you know, people who don't want an iris scanner, they don't want the facial scan, they don't want, that's fine. Yeah. Go to multi-factor authentication. We even have mechanisms if you're not comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. But I, I agree with you. I think we have to make things easier because there isn't enough money. The attack surface is so massive. Yep. Right. And, you know, as, as, as you talk about in this article, you know, most defenders aren't thinking about security. It's not their number one, right? They're not thinking about it all the time. And as as Brett Callow mentioned, you know, they just, the adversary just casts a wide net. Mm -hmm. Why not? Yeah. There's not a lot of risk. Right. Yeah, it doesn't cost. Why and not? the cost is so <clears throat> small for them to do that. You know, it's versus, so small. Yeah, for versus us who are trying to plug every hole that's out there, the cost of doing that is huge. 
right? So yeah, agreed. And unless we unless we come up with with better tools and better approaches across the board to make security more ubiquitous mm-hmm. on all of our product sets and as part of everything that is done, we're going like security's got to stop being looked at as an add-in or an additional thing, right? right? It is got to be part of whatever service it is that you release. Microsoft learned this lesson years ago, right? You know, I was around long enough and I'm dating myself a little bit before patches were kind of like deployed by Microsoft. It was a, we posted them on this site somewhere and you kind of went to download them. There wasn't this Microsoft update thing. You had to know to go look for them, right? They, they suffered through like four or five major, you know, security events that drove them to change that policy pretty quick. They've been great ever since recognizing that it is painful if you don't structure yourself to be able to maintain and and set up these updates, you know, in in a consistent fashion. There are lots of companies that still haven't learned that lesson though, right? right? You know, there's lots of places that just don't understand that security has to be built in or you will end up paying the price later on, whether it is paid by the consumer or paid by the provider, it doesn't make it, somebody's paying for it. And it, right. it never ends up, you know, you know, good for us as citizens in the end. It's, it's always a painful process. Yeah. Microsoft literally went from the reason malware exists, mm-hmm. like people created malware to hack Microsoft operating systems, whether it was DOS or, or, or Windows to the number one company in the world from a security investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it, what a transformation. If we can right. get society to do that. Right? Yeah. Well, and it's, like it's shift that mindset. Yeah. It's, it's huge. huge. And, and like you said, I mean, they, they are, they are the, the poster child for somebody that adopted and embraced what is necessary to be done for their products. But you can imagine the conversations happening at like Toyota and Honda and Ford right now. I suspect that they're still based off of you know, okay, we've got to do something to protect cyber, but that's part and separate from the design of the systems. Right. Right. When they should be looking at saying like, okay, cyber is just as important as how many RPMs can I get out of my engine? Right. Right. It is right. critical that we get that stuff built in up front. We've got to be able to adopt that and recognize that 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 is that is crucial because otherwise, as we move into this physical component of uh, digital interaction, we're going to, that's really hard to replace. Those things are really difficult to fix if you end up in a, in a scenario where there's a, comp, uh, a com- compromisable asset that has a, a physical presence. Well, and it's a lot more costly in my experience to bolt mm-hmm. it on after the fact. Yes. Oh yeah. Like w- we will oftentimes go in to see, talk to customers and they're like, okay, here's what I've got. And it's really a problem. I was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago about about um, air gapping critical infrastructure, and his response was that that horse has kind of left the barn. There are so many holes, so many connections from critical infrastructure components to the internet now, and it's so convenient. In many cases, most cases even, you have no no chance of telling the operators they're going to have to air gap their networks right. and turn off all of those features. Some of them contractually obligated. Yeah. Wow. I was going to say, <laughs> even even the people that manage the environments at that point are are relying on that internet connectivity for it to function. And, right. And there's no way, I mean, at this point, there's no way around it, right? But you, if you built it securely, yep. securely from right. the beginning up, you would have, and uh, we'll pick on VPN for a second, you have a single VPN tunnel maybe in, 
And that's the only way to connect and get data out and move patches up and everything else. That could have worked. Yeah. Well, and that's that that's that concept of the, and we haven't really talked too much about it, but the zero trust architecture structure, mm-hmm. right? That, yes. that concept of the, hey, you know, we're gonna build this this bubble around and as close to the data as possible so that regardless of of wherever or whatever the data or interaction is um, that you need, it, it will be, you know, pr- uh, protected and any interaction will be considered untrusted until we can verify that it's supposed to be there. That that concept is really powerful. And what I think you, you've seen the federal government talk a lot about and what um, I know at Virginia and a couple of the other states, they're talking a lot about to say, OK, how do we do this? Um, because it's going to be necessary especially with the way that we've, we've, we've kind of recovered from COVID, right? Everything went out, right? I always say that, you know, we had this like nice, a good do my job security strategy, nice orderly structure for saying we're going to adopt the zero trust model over the next four to five years. You will have different components in place. And by the time we're done, everything will be great. COVID hit, everything went out, all the, all the applications <laughs> that were no, that weren't really exposed to the citizen all of a sudden became exposed to the citizen. Everybody moved to third party like SaaS and cloud everything was a mess very quickly, right? So now we're like, okay, we got to accelerate our model a bit and try to figure out how can we, in, you know, uh, interpose, put something in place that's going to at least emulate the zero trust model as quickly right. as possible. Because without something like that, like you said, the these critical infrastructure components and such aren't going to be able to survive these 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 uh, cyber attack interactions because it, you're right, it's extremely costly in the physical space because you can physically go out there and do something with it. Right. You can imagine trying to fix right. a common <clears throat> bug on traffic lights. Like we can't visit every traffic light in the state in any reasonably you know, yeah. quick fashion. It's, it will take years to do something like that. And right. that that's daunting. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Okay, Rachel, I hate to say this, it's time. One last no. question. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send it over to you. Oh, well, you know, it's okay. We can have Michael back if he's willing to join. I would love to come back. I would (laughs) be amazing. I would love that. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So as Eric knows, one of my favorite questions and, you know, someone who's been in the the cyber world for a really long time, such as yourself, um, you know, do you have optimism, you know, for the cyber path ahead? Are we going to get ahead of this? this threat here in the next five years, 10 years, or, or is this just something we got to look to the next generation to solve? <laughs> hopefully it's not, and, and I won't bet, hopefully it's not like climate change, right? Where we're trying to figure this out a little bit too long, but I, I do, I do think that we have, I think the urgency is being built and is being recognized further and further every day. I do think that there are, we know what strategies need to be employed. We do have some great success stories and we've talked about a couple yeah. today too, Right. You know, Microsoft's a really great example. Even, you know, what I suspect some of the stuff and, and how we reacted and handled some of the conversations with Colonial Pipeline, those are conversations that were great to start and, and have. Right. We, right. we have a ways to go still to um, understand where we are comfortable as a country policy wise right. and who's going to be responsible for what parts of response for a truly significant cyber incident. Um, that's going to take some time to work out um, because any type of, you know, conversation right. like that is going to take time to work out. But I do think that, that people recognize the need is there. And that's, that's probably the most important part. Right. Um, now that now we just got to, you know, take the steps and continue the, the process of pushing and making sure that we don't uh, forget and we don't, um, you know, not address those things before it becomes a major problem. 
I will say that uh, the nice thing about having so many people after us all the time is anytime you start to forget, somebody's there immediately to remind <laughs> you. To remind you. <laughs> well, and, and the press is helping because right. yeah. the executive leadership at all levels is really understanding this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Yeah. And I so. completely agree. I think that honestly, even the last three presidents have all had something cyber related in their, in their uh, crosshair mm-hmm. somewhere. Right. And everybody right. dealt with it differently. And I won't pick on one versus another to say, right. you know, someone did great or not or whatever, but everybody had it as something to recognize that it was an important part of the way that they were managing, right. you know, the country as a whole and continuing to embrace that and make sure that it, it is part of our policy direction is going to be crucial for us to get it fixed. Now, yeah. I will also say I would love nothing more than to be in a scenario where cyber isn't doesn't have to be called out as its own thing. Right. It should just be part yes. of the process. Yes. Um, but right. we are quite a ways away from being there yet. Um, I'll be surprised if it happens by the time my career is over, but we'll see. Um, I was going to say do- it's ultimate job security in yeah. our lifetime. Not, <laughs> right. not that that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm optimistic that we're at least in the right path to deal sure. with a lot of the problems. I think that uh, – um, but until we get to the point where it doesn't have to be called out separately, we're going to be in a little bit of a, a struggle for a while. Exactly. Um, we've got a, we've got a road to go. But you know that's that's not unusual for for any large complex problem. Right. That's a great fair point. point. Yeah, great point. All right. Well, with that, we've uh, one more episode down. And thank you so much, Mike, for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, Thanks so much for having me. You guys have been great. I, I love talking to y'all. <laughs> yeah, this is a lot of fun. And, and for such a complex problem, it's nice to be able to have a little levity too. <laughs> well, and, and we'll bring you back because this problem isn't going away. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So much more to talk about. So Okay, Rachel. So subscribers or yes. listeners who haven't subscribed, what shall they do? They need to smash. I mean, just smash that subscription button and you'll get a fresh episode every single Tuesday right to your email inbox. Couldn't be easier. Uh, So don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again to Mike Watson. Uh, And until next time, stay safe, guys. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.